friends, welcome back to the show today. We have returned to the studio, back out. What do we call this? Yeah, this is we call this the studio. The studio, yeah. the Scott Erickson studio mm-hmm. with Scott Erickson and Jason Miller. Welcome to the show, friends. Thank you. Nice to be with you. It's good to see you, man. This triad of awesomeness. Yes. That's what this is. Yeah. There's a lot of awesomeness to get ready for. Uh, this is one of the rare occasions that I will record on a Saturday. Uh-huh. And may the, even the date that we're scheduling this communicate how much I love you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. We will make an exception for you. Well, we, you know, we, there's the, there is the uh, offering of a lunch afterwards. So it's really kind of a. Yeah, that's true. I mean, like, I'm, let's I, go through the painful part of doing this and then we'll have some food. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's fair. Like if you, yeah, if you survive this and we get lunch out of it, that yeah. makes a lot of sense for sure. Uh, last time we, we actually were here, but I really didn't know your work as much. Yeah. Uh, super like enjoy the podcast. Great book and all that stuff. Uh, I've since become a fan of your work. And you, you did the uh, Stations of the Cross. Mm-hmm. What? What? Yes, I, what Stations of the it? Cross. I call it Stations in the Street. Okay, it's like street art. Graffiti. Okay. Yeah. So I got a little trouble because people were like, "Oh, are you supporting graffiti?" And I was like, "Well, the graffiti was done when I arrived, and since it was already up, I was going to really enjoy it." And I remember, like, I talking <laughs> about under Mopac. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, here's how I remember that you put it up, and mm-hmm. we're like. Hey, we walked around, we talked for a while, and then, like, uh, I was like, hey, uh, Scott, would you leave? I just want to go look at your art. I felt like I was a jerk, because I was like, hey, I just want to go, like, look at your art. I don't want to talk anymore. Yeah. But that's, like, I meant that as a compliment. I hope That's great. Because I've, I've replayed that one. I think one I had to go, too. Okay, like, good. I was there in the morning, and I was like, yeah, sure, stay, I'm going to go. Yeah, it was, yeah. It, was am- it was amicable. Okay, it was, it was a mutual breakup. Yeah. But I've really found your work <laughs> super meaningful, and it seems like you've found that niche in Instagram where you're like adding value to people's lives on there where it's not just like, um, Hey, I'm really cool. And y'all, y'all are not as cool, but it was like, there's a value add to your Insta. That's a pretty good summation of Instagram. That's great. (laughs) I think that's what reels feel like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I made some specific, I think there's a number of things about Instagram. One is I made a real conscious decision about doing something specific, which I would say is spiritual formation through image contemplation and it's a place for me to write, invite others to kind of deal with themselves. And then, yeah, and then now it's become, and also, hey, I'm coming to your town, come to a show. So, the, But there's that real intentionality of, like, providing something for whoever's looking for, for themselves. Yeah. Um, and then uh, also, I mean, I've been doing this kind of imaging with Christian spirituality for a while. But it wasn't until these formats came out. My joke is, like, in Christend- American Christendom... It's like, who do we care about? The preachers, the nonprofit workers, the musicians, like the visual artists, we don't care. And, uh, but then when these formats came out and we had to start providing uh, material and content in a visual format, I was like, what do we, what? and then my stuff was just like landed really well. Like it just works well. So that's kind of, yeah, I remember being on another podcast and this guy was like, I've never heard of you. And I was like, yeah, because I'm in a category where I don't have a lot of competition and also a category where nobody cares about it. <laughs> like, at least until it became like, whoa, it works really well on this platform. And that's really, that's been interesting over the last few years. But you, you talk about the medium that we have promotes certain types of voices that we care to listen to. Mm-hmm. Musicians, preachers on stage, and all of a sudden, different medium creates a situation where we're listening and paying attention to yeah. others, which yeah. makes, yeah, yeah, that's probably a good thing. Yeah. I mean, cause you, if you think about it, was, well, it was either like re- recordings and, uh, or it was like conferences and radio for a while. Well, me, if we were taking it in, it was like, what's on TV and what's on the radio. And then when the internet came around and then it became like, Oh, now we can do these podcasts. If we're talking about like churches and stuff, yeah, no, no. like, and then sermons and there was like video sermons and then there's the kind of that. And then it became these social media platforms where it's, then it's like, Oh, we can make our own videos. We don't, we don't even have to go through like network television or something like, or cable television. We can yeah. just put it right up here. And so then there's this disbursement of voices and content makers and stuff. So, yeah. Mm. yeah. Did you ever, pre-Instagram, did you ever, on a stage, paint a painting of Jesus' face upside down? No. And then rotate <laughs> it? <laughs> no. That was not my shtick. No. No, I didn't. I got asked to do that. Did you really? And I was like, I, 
don't want to. <laughs> Sorry. They're like, no, we'll pay you a lot. And it's like, no. But if we read your books upside down, we don't see Jesus. If you either. read it backwards, it'll be like, please turn your life over to the devil. Okay. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so I've never been able to get to one of your Say Yes shows. I tried to come. You had one in Austin a couple yeah. months ago, got sold out. Yeah. And uh, But Jay speaks extremely high of it. Yeah. And like life changing for his friend oh, specifically yeah. that mm-hmm. you shared those texts. Yeah. And when you're taking a book, that, okay, so the new book, is same title, say yes. Yep. Um, comes from material that was developed like on stage before the stage. Anyway, but yeah, you've, you've in some ways like workshop this for years. Like yeah, it started as like my own personal practices, and then became like a talk, and then became like a show, and then now is like a book. Yeah. What do you think of the, as you work the material out, obviously your like performances are very participatory yeah. with the audience, you engage with people. Mm-hmm. H- how much did you find yourself like altering and like um, contouring what you're doing for the kind of like feedback that you're getting across the country? Well, yeah. Like, well, I remember, and I, I thank my friend Justin McRoberts at the end. Cause I, I remember when I was first starting to do it, even at the, when I first started doing it, I had a thing at the beginning where I was like, this is a work in progress. So if you expected to come and see something polished, the gift I have to give to you is you're better than me because I like am making mm-hmm. mistakes along the way. And I think after like the sixth or seventh time we were doing an event for this prayer book and we were driving in the car and I was like, I think I need to just like step back and kind of write all this out and then come back and do it. And he goes, no, I think you should just keep working it out in front of an audience. Yeah like how comedians do for sure. And so I started doing that. So I figured out a way to just go, I'm working this out right now. And that really helped me cue in on things that were working, things that weren't working. Like I have a, a joke, I have a joke, like a story I tell where my wife was at the Portland zoo and this woman was telling her son why, cause he was like, why are mom, why are these yeah. Why don't these lions have manes? And she's like, well, they shave the lion's manes in the summertime to keep them cool. <laughs> and my wife's like, you know, like mom to mom, like, no, 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 those, these are female lions. They don't grow manes, you know? And I, I would tell this like joke and I noticed like the audience didn't laugh. And I was like, oh, do you guys think that's true? Like, it's not, you know, and I had to develop <laughs> yeah, like yeah, another yeah. joke to address that. Cause I was like, we understand that we like shave dogs or shave sheep sure, yeah. and stuff like that. Like we don't need to shave lion's manes because they live in Africa and a, a Northwest, <laughs> a tepid Northwest summer day is not going <laughs> to kill yeah. them off yeah. from yeah. their evolutionary headscarf. Like it's not gonna, <laughs> yeah, that's not gonna, but the thing. story, that story still made in the book and like, otherwise yeah. the kid's going to go grow up and be a freshman in college and tell that story. Yeah. It's just kind of, a story about like but like you things we learn when we're young like information we Mm -hmm. receive that's still rolling around in us and uh yeah and as i would tell that story oh then i'd get responses where people are like oh man my parents told me something and then in college i said this (laughs) i said it (laughs) yeah and i had that experience or like um Oh gosh, I I can't remember it. But well, okay. I remember it's a great story that somebody told me about Christmas, where the parents would just make something up about Christmas trees needed to breathe mm-hmm. uh, when you put them in your house, but the parents just didn't want to decorate the tree right away. <laughs> so this grown man, yeah. like to his wife, was like, "Well, we need to let the Christmas tree breathe for a few <laughs> days." She's like, "What?" <laughs> yeah. I had this joke when I, I just summarized doing stand up yeah. in Austin, and I had this joke about um, like being hateful to the LGBTQ community. And I made some joke about not being uh, uh, whisper a Baptist. And I would make that joke and like, and it would be like the one thing that I never would get laughs on. Uh-huh. And then I realized, what y'all, y'all don't know who Westboro Baptist is. Yeah. And I remember years ago, Richard Beck, a psychologist snabbling, wrote the book Unclean. Uh, yeah. Uh, he talked about humor is contingent upon a shared body of knowledge. Yeah. And so if the body of knowledge I'm assuming about most people is they know who Westboro Baptist or yeah. the actual hair care practices of the <laughs> lion in the wild, like it reveals like we, we don't all think the same things. We don't know something about the same yeah. It, whereas if you're just writing the book, you send it out to an editor or two, they yeah. might know it because yeah. whatever reason. But like you're actually working it with people and you realize, oh, we, we think and learn things. We, we've learned things differently. Yeah. I just, it's probably going to happen, but I just booked some shows in the UK. And, oh, yeah. and one of the things I'm going to have to do is contact somebody over there, probably the guy who's bringing me out, and just be like, let me run you through some of the jokes I make. Because 
I, I can imagine myself showing up and making a very particular American joke, and they're just like, we don't know what that is, you know? Okay, I've got a... Do you have a story about oh, this? Oh, I've, I've got a buddy who that I work with, his name's Ramjan, he's from uh, Rwanda, he was born in the Congo, from Rwanda, yeah. and he had a... Uh, he's a comedy guy, and yeah. so he did a uh, comedy show with a bunch of, uh, like... Uh, I think most of them were from Rwanda. And he's yeah. like, hey, would you come help out and like do something with it? I was like, are you kidding me? Like, you know me, Ram John. Like, my dry sarcasm hardly works in our audience. What do you think it's going to work cross-culture? And I was like, yeah. well, well, what should I say? And he goes, well, you know, in Africa, like one of the big things is like gorillas. And so you, you can make some gorilla jokes. I was like, bro. <laughs> do you have a lot of, bro, do you have a lot of gorilla you, jokes? I was like, no, there's no, you don't. And I was like, let me explain to you how that, pl- no, no. Also, is it possible that he was setting you up? Yeah. Yeah, he's smarter than me, so it probably is. But I was like, bro, no, 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 no. Anyway, but so much of humor is like yeah. a shared body of knowledge. Yeah. And context and culture and yeah, like, yeah, there's a mm-hmm. lot of nuance and stuff. But yeah. And then you can work, when you know that, then you can work around that. You could say... Westboro Baptist, maybe you've heard of them. They're those people who protest. Like, and then people are like, oh, I've heard of that. I just yeah. didn't know the name yeah. as much. Yeah, there's certain things. Like, I'm working on a story about this time I was on The Price is Right, and I'm working with like a writing coach, and she was like, when you describe the game you're playing in a storytelling format, you have to like totally describe what the game is. You can't just go, it was three strikes, you're out, numbers of the car. She's like, you're going to have to take like a few sentences to go, the game goes like this. You do this, there's number car. Mm-hmm. Like, describe it all because some people haven't, it's surprising, some people haven't watched The Price is Right. So, yeah. There, but there's you can a find book, ways to do that. Anyway. There's a book called uh, Made to Stick. It's about like these marketing guys and they talk about the curse of knowledge. When you know something, you forget what you know that you had to learn. Mm. And you forget that other people don't know three strikes and you're out. Like, I have yeah. no clue what the game is, but you yeah. watch the show, you've been on it, you just yeah. assume. Yeah. And yeah, assuming it's not probably good for communication. Yeah. Yeah. But that's okay. That's, but that's good. You confront those assumptions and then you just, it helps, you know, you're, uh, you're offering a bridge to this knowledge and describing mm-hmm. the thing. And it's not like, hey, before I continue, please pull out your phones and watch an episode of The Price is Right and then we'll go on. You know, you For can sure. just let them go. It's like, it's a game. It's basically, let me describe what the game is. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, we're going to have to describe something to Jay because part of your book is like turning 40 and like <laughs> midlife. And Jay I've yet to cross a, that threshold. A, a matter of weeks, months we, away we, from... Hold on. <laughs> it's, it's a matter of weeks. It's when, my, what month is your birthday? September. Oh, okay. We have some time. I mean, that's, that's like, like half a year. It's like 30 weeks. Yeah. 40 weeks. So, I mean, that, that is a matter of weeks, technically speaking. So is turning 80, technically speaking. <laughs> yeah. It's a matter of weeks. Well, it is. You know, it's like 200, <laughs> it's like 350 <laughs> weeks away. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's going to happen. Yeah. Anyway, happen. educate okay, me. What do I need turning to Turning 40, uh, like I turned 40 a couple months ago. And when you turn 40, like it's, it's something. It's something. That's, I say that in the talk, in the, in the book, I'm like, it's just a number created by astronomy. You know, it's just a number about how many times we go around the sun, but there is, it is something. There's some kind of threshold for some people. It's a lot. Some people it's mild, but it's kind of like a first and second. It's kind of like a move. Yeah. Um, it's how Richard Rohr made all his money. Um, (laughs) it's like a money bags roar. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Scrooge McRoar. So I've Uh, talked to Rohr about this and, it's on the it's in the podcast, but it's like somehow I was, I was thinking that oh maybe I've I've gone second half of life as like a precocious thirty five year old or something, and I think that's like Roar just being generous because that's who Roar is. Yeah. And no, I hadn't. Like there is literally something yeah. that happened around forty yeah. for me. Yeah, and like for you, like it was. It was something. I had something happen to me when I was thirty nine, so I was coming up on forty. And I will say this: I mean, do I can describe my what happened to me that was kind of the thing about the book i'll say this before what i did about turning 40 is i realized i had a lack of imagination about what my 40s could be like and so i went to all my friends who were in their 40s even 50s and i was like help me tell me what the gift of this decade is and they like helped me nice they were just like well you received the gift of not caring what other people think about you and Mm. less and less you receive the gift of like kind of this is my incarnation in the world and just need to accept it and say yes to it which these all kind of tied into it but what happened to me is i was can i just follow up you said you didn't have an imagination about 40s like you just were bleak about what 
life was like after 40? What do you mean? When I grew up, I'm like a, just a tad older than you guys, but like, maybe you remember like our parents when they turned 40, it was like, you're over the hill. Remember they had like over the hill parties yes. and now it's like 40. It's like, when are you going to run your marathon? It's like a very different way <laughs> yeah. of celebrating 40. And, uh, yeah, it just was like, but I still think I was confronting a cultural narrative, which is it's when you're younger is when it's all awesome. Mm -hmm. And then as you get older, it slowly tapers off. And that, and what happened to me is I had this experience where I just, I just burst into tears one night and couldn't control it and realize what was happening is kind of like this dream was dying and my body, you know, like a lot of the things that happened to us, like depression, I know depression could be complex, but like, your body will let you know something's not working anymore. Mm -hmm. And, uh, my, it was like my soul and my physical body were just like, and my psych and my mind were just like, Hey, that idea of yourself that you've always had, that's not going to come true. And you need to grieve and let that dream go. But there's this deeper thing, which is what kind of person do you want to be in the world? You're going to have to start now. You, if now that you've discovered this, are you going to do it? And as I started like pursuing that, uh, I was immediately confronted with these like inner voices and these arguments. And what I had to do was figure out these like counter arguments, mm -hmm. what I would actually call like spiritual health and spiritual practices, mental health practices. Cause I think they're around the same thing. Yeah. And I needed to find something that would help me counter these really strong narratives about what I was capable of doing, who I was, when I should have started all of these things. And, um, and then as I developed this, that I think it was like a three or four months. I was like, these really work. And I'm a content maker. So I was like, you should figure out how to monetize. This. <laughs> and, then, and then I called myself. I was like, don't be a jerk. Like just sit on it for a bit. So I, I gave myself a year and just kind of made sure that these things worked. And then, you know, God, the spirit, I, the muse, when I talk about the creative muse, I just, I kind of sense the muse go, I want you to start talking about this stuff. And then, um, my friend Nick Lapara, who has a podcast called Let's Give a Damn, he is in Nashville. I was going to Nashville and I was like, hey, can we do a live podcast taping? Because I just need a format to talk about this stuff. And so we did one in Nashville. I literally just had like a stack of notes. And it was just like a format for me to talk to an audience and go, this is what I've been thinking about. And like half the audience stayed afterwards and was like, that really resonated with me. Then a few weeks later, I was doing speaking at a... Um, arts conference in Boise, Idaho. And I just like a little less notes, a little more slides. I presented this stuff and it really resonated. And then it was that afternoon that we all found out that Anthony Bourdain took his own life. Mm -hmm. And I say that I talk about this in the book. I used to talk about it in the show and then I took it out. It just didn't make sense in the whole thing. But I was like, I didn't, I don't want to be a celebrity chef, but Anthony Bourdain to a lot of us who are makers represented what we hoped our making would do, which is we were unabashedly ourselves and, and we were really good at something and that led us to success and fame and opportunities and all kinds of things like that. And, um, I mean, I think now because of the documentary that came out about him, we're like, Oh, there was a lot of cost to that. The way that life, if you haven't seen Roadrunner, it's really amazing. But for me, it confronted in me, like in this parking lot in Boise, Idaho, I was just like, well, if you think that this pursuit of all of that is going to give you the, it's going to fill all that lack in you and it didn't for him, why would it do that for you? It's got to be something different, like the success. And I yeah, think we all yeah. cognitively know like success and wealth and fame isn't going to fulfill me, but we're like, but I still want to go get that. But if I yeah. could have a run at it, it'd but be if I could have a run at it, I'll still go it and then deal with it then. And then, so I realized, but I was like, I'm, I have something that's about this. And I just distinctly in this, walking in this parking lot in Boise, I was just like, I need to put this together. I just need to offer something to the conversation about this. And then that's when I really started taking it seriously and was like, I'm going to put something together. I'm going to try to work it. So it was kind of like, that's what I mean from a talk to a show. It was like, oh, I'm kind of talking about it, but then how would you make an experience that kind of like also felt, you felt it, like you yeah. felt what was happening. And then there was a way to transform in that and stuff. And that's when I started kind of building this thing, the crowd interaction and all yeah. the things like that. Yeah. So, and I did that for about a year and a half. And then right before COVID, uh, my acquisition editor, Stephanie came to a show in Knoxville, Tennessee and was like, I think this is a show I'd like to make this with you. And that was kind of, she thinks it's a book. Sorry. She was like, I think this could be a book. <laughs> Um, I would like to work on it with you. 
and then that then there's a lot of things that happen but that's kind of how it yeah i've heard that the talks that we remember the most are not the ones that tell us something new but express to us how we already feel yeah and that's totally what i'm doing <laughs> well yeah, like yeah, you, yeah. everything you're describing is like bro that's a little bit too real for me it's yeah. just like that i think everyone's done that i mean even you hear Chappelle's thing about uh bourdain and in, in maybe two specials ago where he talks about uh oh bourdain has like the best life ever and he still has his life end in suicide and then he compares it to a guy who had a real rough go i'm not gonna give that more joke s- is so funny it's just such a great joke it's such a great joke and you go that is kind of the, the myth that Bourdain undoes for many yeah. people and mm-hmm. copy and paste that into other like spec- sectors of life and different like mm-hmm. idealized lives. Like it's the same thing. It's like, Oh, I thought this is what w- was going to be it for me. Yeah. And then your own life. Well, it's like, well, until I get there, I won't be real happy or that will give me all the things. And I think it's first, it's first about like building the, the worth and the belief that you're on your way towards that. That's not something that, Getting to the destination isn't going to give you the thing you want. It's believing you're a person who can start going that direction. And then you bring that to that place is mm-hmm. really the, is the move. Um, but uh, yeah, what were you just saying about the... Well, I, I, I had a comment on what you were saying. It, it was brilliant whenever I was saying. I don't remember <laughs> it. <laughs> it was. But the, the level of disappointment... Oh, no, it was about... Um, it's not necessarily what you say. It's how people feel about... During the and talk, articulating how they and articulating, feel. Yeah, yeah. I remember the first. It was like number five or something. I did it in front of all my friends, like in my hometown, which is real scary because you don't yeah. go to work with your friends, you know, like no. And for them to come, it's like, well, this is kind of what I do. I'm doing this for a living. Um, <laughs> but a couple of days later, my friend Amy and her husband Zach were over for dinner, and I just said, Amy, what do you remember about the show? It's been like two or three days. I can't remember. And she goes, hmm, I remember you laid on the ground. (laughs) And I was like, perfect. That's actually what the whole show is about, is this like kind of ending death practice. And I embody it. And really it's saying, I want this is what I want you to do the most. I want you to go home and do the death practice to yourself and have that conversation with yourself. I started, so then when she said that, I was like, oh, this is a, this is a delivery system for images. Like I need to make sure my words are are good and concise because that is like part of being a good host of something. You know, if you're just clunky and tripping over, then the experience people get focused on that. So there's a there's a way about you know how are, how are you doing all the hard work to make sure it's like a there's no distractions. But then at the but there's no way nobody's nobody's remembering uh, an hour and forty five minutes of content. So what, what's really going to stick out is like, I remember when I saw this picture or I remember mm-hmm. when you did that, or I remember when this thing happened, Oh, what did they say? I don't remember, but I remember when this happened and it really hit me hard. It's like that. Yeah. So that's what they remember. How that's, they so that really helped me cue in on like, I got to make sure I have kind of images for all the points I want to make. Uh, and, and really I think the whole thing is for me to eventually just get out of the way and for you to have a conversation with yourself is kind of how I, but that's my hope for it. Yeah. 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 So it becomes as Jason. I mean, Jason's seen it, so mm-hmm. maybe he. I don't know what he remembers of it, or if he can corroborate anything I'm saying, or I don't know. No, yeah, totally. I have a lot. When I think about that night, there's images. There's, there's, you know, things you put on the screen. There's what you, what you painted in mm-hmm. real time. There's you on the floor. Uh, there's you karaokeing. Yep. Which is more than words. That's like a. I don't know how to describe that, but you having somebody do karaoke with you, and that's like a whole... Yeah, if people come out of the audience yeah. and we karaoke together yeah. and do a thing I've together. seen clips of that. Yeah. It's crowd That's the most mm-hmm. recorded thing is people. Yeah. People, people like that. Yeah. I mean, it's a great song. It is a great song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun. Okay, so uh, Subject Matters Worked Out becomes this experience, yeah. becomes a book, yeah. and now the whole world can experience it through a book. I mean, I hope so. Can, yeah. I, just so we get there's one part I want to get to yeah, and if, if I was more go. gracious I would like let's just work through the ideas of the book but uh, no, let's go to I, it. I want to start to it um, and it's, it's not a fun one uh, it's you talking about uh, suicidal ideations mm-hmm. and the line that I remember was you saw that as a way of controlling hurts that were uncontrollable it, give me the quote on controlling, that controlling uh, my conversations with suicide are about controlling a pain I felt like I had no control over in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I assume that's an experience that other people have. Can you flesh out more about 
feeling like there's uncontrollable hurts that yeah yeah well i think the like the i say this in the book but i think the strategies of giving up on yourself which could be numbing out addiction whatever but also on that spectrum is like taking your own life the strategies for giving up on yourself and the strategies for not giving up on yourself are the same it's like when you like if we just get into suicide like what's exciting about suicide you're making a plan it's always interesting to make a plan. <laughs> you're making a timeline. Mm. You're making a, a, an avenue to getting out of your miserable situation. Mm. You're making a move to go, I want to change things. Those are inherently interesting and exciting. But empowering comes and, to mind. And too. empowering. And, and you feel like you have control. Because that's what, that's what I mean when my own... I was talking with a friend about this, and he actually said it, and I was like, dude, you're so right. It was about, I felt like I had this pain that I didn't have control of. And how I say it in the show and the book is like, but what I have control always is whether or not I want to be here. And that, I think that is the, like, the control there. And then what I parallel with is like the religious culture I grew in that was obsessed with, obsessed with like afterlife or rapture or end of the world. Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, I actually think it's the same thing because it's like very uncomfortable with the pain of being here. So what it can control is the narrative about getting out of here and becomes obsessed with that because it actually is very uncomfortable with like what it means to be here. Yeah. And that's a whole other like spiritual level to the thing. But so when I found that, I was like, and then I started looking at like, how do you make changes in your life and all that stuff? I was like, oh, it's the same thing. You make a plan, you make an intention, mm -hmm. you imagine yourself in a different scenario, you start working towards that, you make a timeline. These are all very, these are all the same things. Instead of like, I'm going to go get a rope and then I'm going to throw it over a railing and then I'm going to tie and I'm going to get a chair. You go, I'm going <laughs> to apply for that job or I'm going to talk to a friend or I'm going to like, mm -hmm. I'm going to start going on walks every day. I'm going to like, how do I change the narrative about my life? Those are the, those are the things that I, that so I see in there. Change the narrative, but also there's a different relationship with regrets. You talk, your phrase is uh, resurrection of regrets. Yeah. Cause I, what I, so this hospice care worker five, uh, about over 10 years ago, Bronnie Ware, she wrote this blog post called the five regrets of the dying. It became a best selling book. It's a tremendous book, but she said, she helped like 200 people over nine years die with dignity. And she said, actually human beings have the same regrets. They, they all kind of say the same thing. And, um, it's anywhere from like, I didn't work, work. I wish I would, hadn't worked so hard. I wish I stayed in touch with my friends. I wish I had a, um, I wish I had just let myself be happier. I wish I would have, um, taken the time to express my, how I really felt like my emotions and stuff. And then the number one thing is I wish I I wish I would have been the person I knew I wanted to be versus the person I thought everybody wanted me to be. Mm -hmm. That's like the number one regret. And, uh, I feel like there's a lot of wisdom in that. And I'm, you know, I'm 44 now, but I was like, I hopefully have another 40 years of living. Shouldn't I try to take that wisdom and apply it to my life so I don't have all these regrets at the end? Like mm -hmm. if that's when if that if that when you look back at your life and you go, what really mattered? These things. I'd like to align my life to that now. And maybe we've all kind of come and this is what I say is like maybe we've all kind of come across that at times. So like we got in a car accident or like we go to a surgery and you're gonna get put under and you're like, well, that's real scary. Like I almost drowned one time and when I came out of the water, I wasn't like, I need to work on my surfing skills. I was like, I gotta rethink everything about my life. <laughs> Cause I like because I like, oh I almost drowned. I almost mm. died. And it just that I, the poet David White says, there's this conversation with your eventual disappearance. And that conversation came really close when I was underwater and it mm -hmm. demands an adjustment uh, on what's important. So, and I know I'm like, I mean, you guys are all wearing dark clothing too, but I know I'm an Enneagram four and an artist and I wear mostly dark. I know you get pops of color, but like I kind of have now like a, a, a variation of a death practice, meaning, um, I just, every week, if not every day, for a little bit, I just go, if today was like in the morning, and none of this can sound morbid, but it's actually really helpful if I go, what if this is the last day with my kids? Mm. Yeah, that's real. Because yeah, no. I have friends who've lost their kids just like that. And, and it just goes, it just goes, how do you want to treat them? 
How do you want to talk? How do you want to spend your time with them? What's, what's the deepest priority you have about what you think is important in their life? And I, it doesn't mean I don't have emails. It doesn't mean I don't have admin. It doesn't mean I don't have to like do the dishes and the laundry and clean up the stuff. You know, it just makes me go, what is the most important thing today? And it just helps me k- clue in on that, you know? No, that's real. And, and, so, and then even like creatively, and I talk about this in the book, I just go, if I get offered a creative project, I'll go, what if this is the last thing I did? Like in three months, I would die at the end of this. If I was going to die in three months, I wouldn't do any project. <laughs> I wouldn't do anything like that. But it go, it just goes, well, if at the end of three months, maybe I, if I'm, I'd be like, yeah, I'm glad I finished on that. Then that's a good sign that this is something I should focus on. If I go, no, no, I would have hate that I did this. Then I go, well, why? Well, because I wish I would have done that. Then the, the big question is, well, why are you ignoring that? Mm-hmm. If that's the thing most in you, why are you not paying attention to that? And what I say happens is like this inner compass comes to view, which is like there's something that's saying this is what you deeply care about the most. And I would say that that's actually a divine compass. That's a divine road to walk down. And that's what I want to spend more time. I'm not, and you know, I think there takes some, some discernment in your life. Like there are times in my life where I had to take every job offer I ever got, Yeah, of course. you know, and now I'm at a spot where I can mostly pick or choose, which is helpful. But I think that's been also part of the process is, is that kind of leading to the spot where I can decide yeah. what I want to do. It's more important to me in a world of distractions and offerings to go, what is the unique thing that I can lend to? And what do I want to do the most? And how can I make the time and say yes has so many meanings, but like, because when I say yes to something, I'm also saying no to something else. And when I say no to something, that means I can say yes to something else. And I want to say no to the stuff that, because I want to make the space for what I need to uniquely say yes to. So that's, that's, so say yes as the book. So here's, what's the difficult thing of what I found really challenging about making a show into a book is that in a show, you only have so much time with an audience. You go, what's the most important stuff to talk about in a book? You're like, well, I should take a moment to like flesh that out. And so the book is kind of like, Hey, how do you get in touch with what do you want to do? And then there's like a deeper level, which is like, what does it mean to be alive (laughs) and Mm -hmm. being here? And then there's a deeper level of that. And it's like, if there's a giver of our lives, is that giver involved with our lives? Mm -hmm. And how is that giver walking alongside our lives, if even? And so I had to kind of address all of those things at the same time, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is what actually we have to do. You know, uh, I summed it up saying like, we know life is a miracle, but what happens when the miracle sucks sometimes? Mm-hmm. And if there's a giver of that miracle, does it have anything to say about the suckiness? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like what I'm attempting to do in those things. Yeah, oh, that's good. Have yeah. You, so you started doing the show before COVID. Yeah. And you've been doing it again lately a little yeah. bit. Um, I'm wondering, so I was down a rabbit hole the other day looking at all these sort of data points on how we are like doing collectively right now as a, as a world, like things like addiction, pretty bad, bad, right? Like you (laughs) look at like all these like signs of despair. Yeah. Even, um, we were talking like sports gambling skyrocketing online. Really? So even that, right? Like, and I don't care if somebody makes a bet on a game, but like, like, like drinking, it's like have a drink. Great. But if we're all drinking way more right now, that's probably a sign. And to me, a bunch of this stuff felt like little versions of what you're talking about. Like all these things that we do, when our actual life is just it doesn't feel like it's working for us or we want to opt out of it. Yeah. So what I was going to wonder about was other than like the weirdness of masks and COVID protocols, have you felt a difference in the room doing the show before COVID and doing it now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and for me even too, yeah, it's yeah. weird. It's weird to make something like three years ago, four years ago. Cause I put it together and then probably a year and a half I was doing it. And then, COVID's been almost two years and then to come back to it. <clears throat> I actually, the first time I did it was at um, church on Morgan in Raleigh. We know those people. And for me, it was just, I was like, before I went, I was like, do I even want to do this anymore? Mm. Like I'm a very different person a year and a half from ago. Yeah. yeah. And I, uh, I was like, I need to know if I can do this. And then I, I secretly, I just prayed. I said, I need some kind of sign that this is what I should spend the next year doing. Cause it's a lot of work. And I did the thing. Yeah. And it was like, Oh, it was like reciting lines, but being a different person. So I had to find like the new place within myself to stand to do that, which I found. But then, um, uh, 
yeah, two days later, this guy wrote me this message and he was just like, the summary was I was going to give up on myself and I'm not going to. Mm. And, uh, and I just was like, thanks. That's, and I was like, that's, I just needed that one. I just needed that one person to go. This is worth it. Um, not that I didn't think it was worth it. I just needed to know that it was connecting. It was connecting. And that, so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll spend the next year doing this. Um, and my goal is to like make a book, film it really well. And then be like, here it is. You can interact with the content and I want to move on to other things. But yeah, I do think like, here's my guess is that we've been in survival mode for a long time. And as uh, my prediction from what I've heard is like in the next few months, things are really going to change. And um, all of this deep, like when you're in survival mode, you push everything down to just survive all of this deep, like loss and anger and frustration and like distrust, like people we thought we could trust. So and now we don't, we're like, Oh man, all of this is just going to start coming to the surface. It already is, but there's just going to be this tidal wave of grief over society. And really it's like, I think the conversation is like, well, who are we now on the other side of this and what can we do? Like we lost so much and we lost people and all of this, but what does that allow us to do? How do we want to live different? And I think that actually has happened where people haven't gone back to work. Cause they're like, actually when I took a pause, I was like, what am I doing with myself? I want to do something different. Yeah. So I think that conversation is already happening and this can be just my little offering to have that conversation in a way. Like I, uh, I just was in Portland and my friend, um, Ashley came and she's a photographer and she's like, Oh, so interesting. I'm in this like online class and they're basically saying like, don't trust yourself the whole time. I was like, that's a weird class. And she's like you, but I, are you sure like, it wasn't a church service? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> and, uh, and she just is like, you, I've seen your show before, but it just really hit me like how opposite, like what you were saying was the complete opposite and how much more, I needed to listen to that versus this other teacher. And I needed to trust because I think saying yes is like saying yes to what you can contribute, but it's also saying yes to the gift of your unique contribution, your unique miracle. And, um, and you just have to, that's the divine walk that you'd like to go on is saying yes first to who you are in the world and what's the, and what lies ahead. So, yeah, I think, um, I, and I'm not, we were, I was talking before this, like, I'm not the only one who's written a book like this. Like there's other, I, it's not anything like super new. You can find all this stuff, but I ran it through the, my own unique contribution, which is being an artist. I will say, I don't know any other book that has images that's about this. So that's what I can offer uniquely. There's pictures in it. There's so pictures. A book there's a hundred illustrations this, all throughout it. But this one has pictures. It has So pictures. that's a, a differentiating thing that this one has to offer. Uh, no, I'm, there's more than that. It has to offer. I'm listening to Jimmy Carr, who's a great comedian, his book. And he's an atheist, but he has all the... Man, he has a section where it was like talking about the people who in the second half of their life did things. And he uses... 90, when he said it, I was like, man, we're, we use 90% of the same examples. And I was like, I could not believe it. I was like, okay, well, maybe we both did the same Google search. Well, <laughs> is probably what it was. How about this? And then you, you and I both used the Carl Jung quote about until the unconscious becomes conscious, it'll yeah. dictate your lie and you call it fate. And then we talk about three lies that we all believe. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's, I had a book and we talk about comparison. I'm like, yeah, yeah but there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Except, nothing under the sun. But except there's something unique about your voice yeah. and his voice and yeah. whoever other's voice is saying similar things. Like you have a unique gift to give. I will tell you one thing that I never heard is one of your lies is um, nothing's ever going to change. Yeah. And you talk about that as a defense mechanism. Yeah. Never thought of it that way. Yeah. Can you connect the dots for, for us? Nothing's... So the time's... The probably the root of most of my depression is when I think nothing's going to change. Like I'm in yeah. a miserable moment and I'm like, Oh, this is every day for the rest mm-hmm. of my life. And that's, and that really is despairing. So nothing's going to change is, is kind of a way to prevent you from um, thinking, well, for one, we're always changing and everything's always changing, but it's a defense mechanism in the way that it is. We, we only view stuff from the past so we can't ever like change the past, but we can change our relationship with the past. And what our calculating minds and our ego is doing is going, well, I know this and this and this and this and this from the past. So I'm going to make a play for the future. And so if I have to go like, so it's saying like, 
uh, it's a way to go like, yeah, and I don't ever have to change or risk or grow mm-hmm. or I've, I can be solid and secure in the definition I've given about myself. And that nothing can change is like a real safe place. Even if it's miserable, it's like, well, at least I know how to survive here, which is usually which is I'm going to drink every night and I'm going to yeah. sports gamble and I'm going to like, or whatever. Yeah. I'm going to find fulfillment and things to medicate myself versus the pain. Have you of, tried fantasy football? Uh, no, okay. but, uh, maybe that would be the one for you. Yeah, maybe. Could I'm be. not as, if you can imagine, I'm not a deep sports guy. You, I know that is a shocker. I have some Seahawks paraphernalia, but that's about, that's more nostalgia than anything. Yeah. Um, but so it's defense mechanism that were, I saw a great meme that was somebody like when you're kids, you pick a sports team, and then for the rest of your life, that sports teams makes you miserable. <laughs> That's a little bit too real. I can, I can entertain my own death, my own demise. I can talk about like, you know, giving up, but like, just don't say that. Like I there need was that a few narrative. years I gave a real attention to the Seattle Seahawks. And then I remember one time being so mad and miserable. And I was like, why am I letting this game ruin my life? You know, it's changed. I and I just, yeah, like, I gotta get away. From I, I'm this. like that with the Dallas Cowboys. Something has changed though. My oh. middle daughter uh, started doing flag football and oh. she loves it. Yeah. And so she started wanting to watch football with me. Mm-hmm. And so now we sit down and our youngest will watch that. some. That sounds super fun. But yeah. like watching it with her, yeah. like whenever the Cowboys lose, like, like I don't yell, I don't throw things. Um, but there's something different about me, like having it with, with yeah. her. And I don't know what it is. Maybe I'll flesh that out at some Maybe point. It's the expectation to, you know, we like, this is our team. So you're like, give me my happiness. Yeah. I want happiness. I want to feel like I'm a winner. Yeah, maybe it's. But then when it's cuddled up next to your daughter, you're like, like, oh, oh. this is just a fun experience. And we get to do this together. Oh, that's great. That's a good insight. Okay, so your thing about uh, nothing's going to change, it's a defense mechanism. Your solution is wonder. Yeah. And you talk about wonder as like this filter through which you experience life. You have this great Joseph Campbell quote. Do you have it off the top of your head? You know what? It's something about Uh, like. Not word for word, but he, he says. He's like, I think what people think they want is what's the meaning of yeah. life. And he's like, that's not actually what I think people, I, he's like, I don't think that's what people really want. I think what they really want is the rapturous experience of being alive. Mm-hmm. Wow. Because like to know, knowing is based on, oh, what's the meaning of life? That's something I can know. Wonder is the actual rapturous experience of being alive. Mm-hmm. So how do we develop that filter? So I submit that that filter comes to us in new situations because we don't have narratives about it. That's when it's most easily accessible. Uh, if you show, if you travel and you show up in a new place, you're like, whoa, and you don't have any narratives about it. You're like filled with wonder. But then two days later, you're like, I'm so bored. Let's go on to the next new, most beautiful city in the world. You know, because you're yeah. like, I got used to it all. I developed, I got familiar with it. So, um, so we should go to things that instill wonder in us. Like, go look at the stars or go into nature or go to new places that does help. But with, we still have jobs and responsibilities. So what I offer is a practice of wonder, which is, so you have to unknow the narrative, you know? So just simply ask questions about yourself or I say, become a visitor to your life every day. Mm. And just, if you look in around and be like, well, what don't I know about this room and what's happening right now? What are all the things that unconsciously I've just assumed and just kind of confront those assumptions um, and so that really helps me whenever I get like bored or I think nothing's going to change or whatever. I just go, well, what do I know about right now? And it causes me to look at like nature, um, to assess things. Maybe I notice some things it's giving attention and curiosity is what it's doing. It's just my own way of going. I think the, I, just the question of like, what don't I know about what's happening right now? Yeah. And curiosity um, seems to be the antidote for cynicism. Totally. I mean, you can go into it and then you can know certain things. Like I think all of our bodies are changing every seven years, you know, like our skin, our skin completely <laughs> changes. No, I know so where you're going with that. Our skin completely changes over every seven years. Like, yeah. you know, like, uh, we have, uh, we have a heart. We're only here right now because of a heart that's beating that we're not in charge of. So like we have something that's happening inside of us that we're not in charge of here. I have a, I have some like bits and jokes and I was like, I think it's hilarious that, there's something in me that doesn't check in with me that decides what becomes my poop and pee. Like, I'm like, maybe I don't want that to go in my pee. Maybe I want to put that in my bloodstream. How do I know? How do you get to make all those decisions for me? You know, (laughs) what is this thing making decisions in me? That's like, nah, not that, not that you don't need that. I'm like, Mm -hmm. well, why did I ate it in the first place? I wanted that, you know, like Mm -hmm. there's all these kind of things that are happening to us. Um, and then I think just spending to what the wonder thing does is that, 
why you think nothing's ever going to change is because you have a narrative that says nothing's ever going to change. And when wonder breaks you out of the narratives that are controlling your life. And so when you see that it's just a narrative, then you can see that every situation is just a narrative you're telling about yourself. And so you can find yourself in different situations and go, maybe I can change this narrative. Maybe I can, and you can apply that to your job, your relationships, your friendships, your marriages, your situations, the timeline you think you're on, you know, and it just is a way to free yourself from these destructive narratives. I think what happened to me is I found myself in really destructive, self-harming narratives that was like, you're the problem. Nothing's going to be different. You, you got to a dead end and you're stuck and nothing can ever change. Mm-hmm. And then by helping address those narratives, like, cause I, from my, I'm, I don't go to therapy. I, I'm not a therapist, but I go to therapy. What, uh, what I found is like our most common narrative happening over at all times is, am I safe or not? And then there's these other narratives that are happening all the time, but they came from childhood and they are, this is who I am. This is what I'm capable of doing. And this is how my life's going to turn out. Mm. And those are very preventative narratives to allow when you're like, I want to go here. I can't. <laughs> I can't. Yeah. Sure, there might be some obstacles and risk and some heartbreak and stuff, but there's probably an underlying one, which is like, I've never imagined myself in that moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, just take it to something real carnal and fleshy. Or like, like my wife and I was talking about, like, I was like, if we, because she's always like, win the lottery or whatever, which I'm convinced is the worst thing that could happen to you. But I was like, <laughs> I honestly couldn't imagine myself as somebody with $200 million. Like I've actually never imagined myself that way, mm-hmm. nor do I know if I want to, but I, it, it, it's just more of an exercise of being like, I don't even know what I'd do with myself. I'd probably, ex- you know, what I've heard is money accentuates all your vices actually. Mm-hmm. So, but that can be turned into like, I've never imagined myself as somebody who could grow into becoming a marathon runner. I've never imagined myself growing somebody who could know like, intense scuba skills you know even though i've dabbled in it it's more of like what is the narrative you uh, i've here's my limitation and i've set that for myself and really like going setting those limitations way farther or removing them and i think also with that is setting a timeline that's a lot longer and versus like i got to change in three months and be like well what would i be like if i did this for three years yeah and how would that change so that's the practice it just begins a lot of our arguments are just assumptions put together. And when you mm. pull apart the assumptions, it kind of opens up, I call a universe of possibilities. It just kind of mm. opens up that wall that's in the way and go, well, maybe there's a lot more I don't know about myself. Yeah. That's good. What I could do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Jay, you've actually seen the show. You've got a copy of the book now. What, what else needs to be said? Uh, a couple of things were on my mind. One was um, another thing. You're talking about how like these ideas are out there right now, like the like, British mm. comic. Um, I know like stoicism is like having a heyday right now. Like yeah. Ryan Holiday is this big author. Yeah, and like Tim one Ferriss of Ferris has always been on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the big things there is Memento Mori, uh-huh. meditate on your death. Yeah, and I just I don't know. It just seems like to me it sounds like we're like just living at a time where like we really need this message. Yeah, which is why we're like resonating with it wherever we find it. Yeah, there's a. Um, Padre Gotuma is an Irish poet oh, yeah. and uh, did a lot of peacemaking work. And he's got a little daily prayer book that's yeah. really beautiful. And I use that a lot of mornings. So he has this like morning prayer that you just kind of pray through in the morning. And it's got one line at the end of it. And I remember the first time I read the line, I actually like stopped. And I was like, I don't, know if I, can, I don't know if I can pray that prayer yet. Like, and now like when I, when I pray this line, it's hard for me to describe like what it does inside. It's so simple. It's just, we will live the life we are living rather than like we will opt out of the life we are living or we will ignore the life we are living or we will wish we weren't living. Like just yeah. that we will live the life we are living. Yeah. Which almost sounds like a grammatical error, but until you like sit in it. Yeah. And I feel like this book and the show are like a, an exposition of that heart. Yeah. Like to say yes to like, like this is the one life I have and yeah. to make the most of it. And I know like when I pray that prayer, I feel the same thing I do. Like when I, like I got to read an early draft of this and see the show and, uh, and I know the effect it's had on some of my friends yeah. is to like, it ends up being really empowering yeah. in the best kind of way, which yeah. is to stand in the center of your actual life yeah. and then receive it as a gift and then decide what you want to do with it. Yeah. And I feel like with all the disruption going on right now, like some of the gift that we're being given with like 
Yeah. The whole the whole table's been tossed upside down, right? Like, I'll, I'll, are we having like, these pieces in our life that are on the table, and then yeah, this earthquake called a pandemic comes along and like shakes the whole table up, and all the pieces are up in the air. Yeah. And uh, it feels like a really good moment to, I don't know, get get really brave about where do you want to live? Yeah. And what can you say yes to? You know. Yeah. Um, is it? It's booked back back there. David Brooks, the second mountain. Yeah. He probably did a little better job than I did. He fleshed it out more because he talks about desire and he's like, it's not about having desires. It's about having the right desires. Mm-hmm. Not right as in like, if it's the wrong one, it's shaming, but there's different level. There's better desires to have. That's some, that's some channeling Augustine, I think, right? He, and he, yeah, he's yeah, probably doing yeah. it. Like, so somebody's talking about, and I talk about the path of desire because yeah. Ignatius talks about that. And that really helped me to learn like, oh, you actually, because I was like, my dream died, but I still had this deep desire. And I was like, why is this desire here? Maybe this is the maybe this is the divine path I've been invited to walk. And then well, why is it so mysterious? And, and I, I have like a joke in the show in this book. And it's like, have you ever looked back on your life and you're like, Whoa, I see a path. I'm on a path. <laughs> and then you get to your present day and you're like, and apparently it ends here. And then I look in the future and I'm like, I don't even see anything. Mm-hmm. And it's like one of the, one of the ways that we reveal that path is through contribution, being a mm-hmm. contribution every day. Mm-hmm. It's like the slow daily work of uncovering that path. And, um, so I had to pay attention to that. But yes, I do think there's like, I think there's a great argument to go like, you shouldn't get everything you want. Like just because you want something doesn't mean that's what you really want. And part of the walking the path of discernment is like a path of desire. Desire takes discernment because like you've been given so many images and things through media and comparison and stuff nowadays that like, it's like, Oh, I want Anthony Bourdain's life. And it's like, that do you, you know, like there's a lot of heartbreak and loneliness and, trying to medicate some deep pain through nonstop workaholism that I don't know if you want that, you know? And I think I ease into that by telling a story of my friend Katie, who like went back into architecture school and became an architect again. And, and then she's like, I don't want to work this hard because I have kids and I actually like being a mom and what can I find a different way of being in the world? And Mm -hmm. yeah. But uh, yeah, I do think that there's this kind of like, what have we been confronted in the last couple of years is like, we we've been really close to death even if you even if you're just like masks don't work it's like well i think you could see numbers that people died you know like we've been close to death more than we have in our modern society at least in western modern society and then um a lot of things went away a lot of things uh then our normal habits that we maybe didn't ask questions about stopped and then we go do i want to continue this why did i do that what is what did this bring to my life and do I like this engagement? And, um, yeah, I think it's been, I don't fully know, but it's been like a real interesting reset or blip, you know, to use the Marvel. It's like been a real interesting, like blip of just kind of, uh, okay, actually, what do I want to do? Um, and how do I want to be in the world? And do I have a unique offering and what do I do with these things in me? And if I was to die soon, what would I regret about what I didn't try? You know, yeah, that's good. And what's holding me back? Oh, it's these voices. Oh, all these voices are just voices in me. <laughs> that, yeah. And that's the real surprise. It's like the only thing that's holding you back is the arguments you tell yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, that's good. And maybe I can't jump, so I'm very high, so I can't dunk. Um, you know, when people are like, you can't do everything. Like, I can't dunk a basketball. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. well, what's your definition of dunking, dunking a basketball? I can go to the trampoline gym and dunk yeah. a basketball. Yeah. <laughs> Solid argument. You can't argue with that. Uh, <laughs> Scott, the book, say yes. Yep. Um, thanks for that. I look forward to also, uh, I-, I love that you're going to film yeah. the, the show and have that out at some point down the road. Yeah. I think that'd be a nice, yeah. a nice way to kind of wrap it up. Yeah, that's my goal. It's like, just wrap it up. Here you go. Cool. All right. Uh, say yes. The book is, uh, when is it out? January 25th. January 25th. Available everywhere. Cool. Yeah, go pre-order it. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll actually have this out maybe the week before that. So uh, go pre-order this. But uh, Scott... It's good to see you. Luke, it's great to hang. Jay, thanks for coming back on. Yeah, thanks. And uh, let's go eat some lunch. <laughs>